So our third conference, which really would have been the fourth in a series, will continue an elaboration of various aspects of that theological revolution, you might say, that Scotus began with his defense of the Immaculate Conception. Basically, we have here a practical, efficacious defense of the absolute primacy that leads, therefore, to a fuller, more accurate vision of soteriology, the plan of salvation, and especially the place of Our Lady as universal mediatrix. Once you admit the Immaculate Conception, whose full exposition requires a consideration of the predestination of Christ to glory, but in an orderly fashion, you must, uh, as it were, willy-nilly, Bolens Nolens uh, come to the conclusion that Our Lady is universal media because of her person. She is the Immaculate. And therefore, in the hypothesis actually realized of uh, original sin and personal sin, she is also co-redemptrix. I think Father Chikin made that very clear. Now let us go on. What are some of the anthropological implications of, the, of that? There was to be a preceding conference here by F Professor Noon on the metaphysics that is implied, uh, namely the Marian metaphysics and uh, a metaphysical Mariology. Just as the incarnation is an ontological basis for mediation, so the Immaculate Conception becomes, as it were, a certain ontological basis uh, for the perfection of human nature and above all, all the free will. And that is the point uh, that uh, Professor Hippolito takes, uh, takes up, the implications of the Immaculate Conception for the perfect fiat or assent or consent, and both actually, because without an assent, there is no consent. But not a minimal, barely uh, conscious of what she was doing, but perfectly conscious without the Immaculate Conception. Don't arrive. Now, the entire, what the professor is going to illuminate, uh, enlighten us on, is precisely all those subtle discussions uh, of the intellect and the will and their relationship. There are many as, but he takes up uh, those, on which Scotus has quite clearly, clearly distinguished what has to be distinguished and related what has to be related. And he comes to the very astounding conclusion, but it is there in, in Scotus, the ascent of our lady, the fiat, is the most perfect fiat perfectly matching that of the son who, who when the father has, has sacrificed an oblation, thou wouldst not, here I am, I said, it is written have the book so, and St. Paul comments, and for this God fitted him with the body. Who fitted the body? The body for the, uh, 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 why, Our Lady did. The fiat of our Lord uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in a certain sense, uh, is a prolongation of the fiat that he spoke at the moment of the Incarnation, perfectly matching that of our Lady. Here we see a development uh, of Scotus's teaching on the will. It is not uh, irrational, arbitrary. It is very ordered. It is very reasonable. But what is perfect reason? That is the question. We think we know, but we do not know fully what is perfect reason. Perfect reason is only uh, presented to us when we con contemplate, as it were, Our Lady as the perfect fruit of a perfect redemption by a perfect, uh, uh, perfect redeemer or uh, uh, better mediator. The anthropological foundations of Duns Scotus's Mariology, and if we speak of the anthropology, that will be above all in the will, the heart of Our Lady. 
Benedetto Ippolito, he's a professor at the University of Rome, Sapienza. He's a lay member of Opus Dei. We'll have a sacerdotal member on Thursday giving a talk on another interesting point of, uh, of, of SCOTUS, Father Ferrer Orolano. Undoubtedly, when most non-specialists think of John Dunn Scotus, <clears throat> they recall him in connection with his Marian doctrine. They recall, that is, that the subtle doctor anticipated by a good five centuries a solemn and official declaration of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Obviously, this is a memory of Scotus found primarily in those persons concerned in some way with religious matters, because on the other hand, philosophers who do not dedicate themselves to studying the Middle Ages often have a memory of Scotus much more tied to questions of metaphysics and ontology. This difference is not, of course, a recent one. Don Scotus' metaphysical reflections were of interest to philosophy long before the works of the Marian doctor became usable and readable by all, at least in Latin. As Thomas Williams explained at the beginning of an excellent introductory volume on the Franciscan master, the question of the authenticity of Scotus' works, of the sundry volume on the, uh, uh, the uh, sundry variants of his commentary on the sentences, is quite far from being resolved, even though thanks to the itinerary of studies begun by Pelster and Balich, at least we know what is certain and what is uncertain in Scotus's works from the point of view of authenticity. For these reasons, some of which interest specialists and others of which are of broader interest, I consider the International Symposium now being held extremely important and am truly proud to take part in it. I take advantage of this moment to thank the ecclesiastical and academic authorities present, as well as all those who played a role in organizing this marvelous commemorative assembly. Speaking of Scotus's anthropology is certainly no easy undertaking. Speaking of his Mariology is nearly Im an impossible undertaking. And yet, yet speaking of the anthropological premises of his Mariological theory is in any case essential. As we are all well aware, God's plan of salvation could not have been carried out by God without the contribution of a human being, and a human being could not by itself attain salvation were it not conceded and granted by God. This twofold concourse, this extraordinary assimilation of the divine and the human, reached this unique and perfect summit in the Word made flesh in Jesus Christ, true God and true man. Since, however, the providential plan of salvation also had to respect man's freedom and nature, it is clear that the figure of Mary became indispensable. A woman endowed with all of the prerogatives proper to human nature, without the original sin proper to all men. This twofold characteristic of man, of being de jure open to the possibility of God's salvation and being de facto inadequate to carry out such a choice, made up the nucleus constitutive of all Don Scotus's anthropology. For if Mary's Immaculate Conception was understood only recently and proclaimed only in the 19th century, as Ben said, this came about because probing this nearly impenetrable mystery really required a balanced and subtle anthropological basis and perhaps long years of incubation as well. Not by chance, this anthropological basis emerged in the context of the anthropological and mariological reflection which took place in Franciscan circles at John Dunn Scotus's time through the pioneering work of William of Ware and his school. However, it is only today, thanks to the personalist philosophy and final work in this area by John Paul II, that we have come to the first truly definitive point of arrival. It is thus clear that a deep understanding of Scotus's broad and prophetic Marian conception can finally receive a historic interpretation only if one manages to understand something of his, 
something of his anthropological premises, which are truly original and modern on the basis of our contemporary anthropology. As Gilson was fond of saying, Scotus's philosophy, and in particular his anthropology, is more complex and articulated than Thomas's and Bonaventure's for a very simple reason. It presupposes a deep knowledge of both, besides having its own particular and unmistakable originality. A decisive contribution to understanding Scotus's anthropology comes from the twofold interpretations that Richard Cross and Peter King have presented in some important studies already classic in recent years. As Andrea Tamboroni recently pointed out, the analyses typical of this kind of interpretation essentially follow a twofold line of research. They consider, on the one hand, the relationship between soul and body, and on the other, the relationship between intellect and will. These are two central spheres of study constitutive for a solid theory of man. It is above all Richard Cross who has done a fine job of pointing out how, especially in Scotus, the immateriality of the soul of Augustinian origin is combined with the phenomenology of the powers united to the body that has Aristotelian roots. The result at which Scotus arrives is a fruitful and lofty reflection on the essence of man that at the same time presents the soul as immaterial principle united to the body and the body as the material part of the human essence transcended by the powers of the soul. I think that, perhaps without realizing it, it was another Italian scholar, Virgilio Melchiore, who used a term that puts Duns anthropology in a very clear light. He spoke of a transgression of the powers of the soul in regard to the body, of a sort of a transcendental bent to man's subjective spirituality, which presents the soul itself as an active force driving the entire being of the person. This intrinsic force appears under particular terms and definitions in Scotus's works according to the case at hand, from the agent intellect qua original active form of the soul to the much more original expression causa illimitata, unrestricted cause, to which we will presently return. I do not intend to dwell here on Scotus's theory of the soul-body relationship but wish instead to turn my attention to the other very important aspect of John Duns Scotus's theory of man, namely the relationship between intellect and will. This latter theme not only is truly the distinctive mark of the subtle doctor's anthropology, but is also the aspect that really serves as the basis for his Mariology. Here too, I must make reference to the splendid interpretive contributions that the 20th century has bequeathed to us. Particularly important, for example, is Bernardino Bonasea's invaluable book entitled L'Uomo e Dio nel pensiero di Don Scoto, Man and God in the Thought of Don Scotus. Although Don Scotus is subtle in his analyses, the relationship that he establishes between intellect and will is nevertheless quite balanced as regards the results. By this I mean that the analyses that Scotus puts forth in the context of an anthropological consideration of the faculties of intellect and will are never used to justify unilateral and exclusive judgments. Although, as we will see, the subtle doctor does not always present homogeneous arguments and conclusions in all of the places where he treats of the various questions regarding a particular subject, nevertheless, everywhere we find a doctrinal balance and a solution intermediate between conflicting exigencies. Distinction 25 of the commentary in the second book of sentences, for example, Scotus takes up the intricate question of the relationship between will and intellect by considering the two extreme options and then distinguishing his position from them. The question is whether the act of the will is caused by the object or by the will itself. 
is a crucial question, but it is equivalent to asking whether the object understood by the intellect and successfully presented to the will is the cause of the exercise of the will's act or whether the will is instead the cause originating its own act. Aristotle seemed not only to be in favor of the primacy of the object over the will, but also seemed to indicate a fairly easy way to demonstrate this possible solution. The intellect, like every other natural faculty, is originally in potency. To pass to act, it needs an object that moves it and that activates it. This object is the phantasmata, which constitutes the content in act in the process of knowing. Now analogously, also the will is a faculty in potency which passes to act via the action commanded by the object. The object takes on the nature of an end in regard to the will, for the good known qua end moves the will to act in correspondence with that which it seeks by nature. All of this not only does not exclude but renders possible a justification of free will in reference to the practical act. But the one thing it does is make the act primarily an intellectual appetite seeking a good just as the intellect and therefore subordinate to the intellect where we see is the origin of the Thomistic primacy of the in, uh, intellect. Whereas Scotus defends the primacy of the will, that the will is the author, of the, but his problem is to show why that is not irrational. Irrational. What is the relationship between the object of the will and the act of the, act of the will here that leads up to discussion of proxis, practicality? Uh, the intellect presents to the will, the will, and the will, as it were, chooses, but above all, in the matter of the essence of contemplation. Love of God or knowledge of God is and vice versa. Now, whether we need grace in order to do that at times is another, another question. The definition presented a short while ago already offers a key to resolving the problem. Since proxis is an odd extra extension of intelligence, that is, an extension of the outside, then it is clear that only beings endowed with intelligence are capable of truly voluntary acts. Let us read Scotus's words. The acts which are not ordered to the intellect, such as the vegetative acts, and those which by nature precede the intellectual act as the sensitive acts do, are not called proxis, nor does practical knowledge extend to them, since they are prior to intellection. Since they are prior to intellection, they are radically, uh, uh, radically non-personal, non uh, uh, non-voluntary. Non -vol Only voluntary acts constitute proxis uh, in the formal sense of the term. Here Scotus does not conceive of the anteriority of, uh, as, uh, as mere temporal precedence, even though gene uh, genetically it is also this. The precedence is rather of an axiological or qualitative sort. Whoever has a superior capacity must also possess the inferior capacities. The practical will is the highest uh, capacity of intelligence because it regards its ability to freely interact with the outside world. Hence, it clearly presupposes, besides the intelligent, also the other less complex and less noble faculties. Furthermore, according to Scotus, not only are plants and merely <laughs> sensitive animals incapable of accomplishing voluntary acts, but whoever is intelligent man must free himself from sense instincts in order to be genuinely free and rational. Human freedom is then the expression of an autonomous intelligence and of a fulfilled will, capable of reaching a perfection that is not only interior but also exterior. From this derives Scotus's substantial adhesion to Aristotle's naturalistic foundation with, of course, due reserve and with the corrections called for. <laughs> the philosopher's statement in Book 6 of the Ethics, according to which a right choice necessarily requires a right reason, should be considered true because right volition requires right reason in conformity to which it is elicited. 
With these last statements by SCOTUS, we approach a conclusion that will be decisive for our discourse. The subtle doctor does not in fact present an anthropology opposed to Thomas's traditional one, as has often but incorrectly been said. On the contrary, he sustains a conception of the relationship between intellect and will that tends to consider the same balance between the faculties, just as Aristotle had theorized it, but gives it greater weight in relation to the subject's freedom. Precisely by taking into account both the particular importance that freedom had had in St. Augustine and the strong Franciscan voluntarism offered by St. Bonaventure, John Duns Scotus now conceives of the will as a faculty at once dependent upon the intelligence and autonomous as originating cause in its regard. Human subjectivity is not simply characterized by the capacity to understand with the intelligence, to abstract from the sensory content offered by experience, and to retain what it has understood in itself. Human subjectivity is also endowed with an originating causal power which renders man not simply an effect of the knowledge of objects but a cause of his own acting and knowing. The decisive point in Scotus's anthropology is precisely the emphasis on the character of human subjectivity as neither passive nor effective nor derived but as active, causal, and operative. In this sense, John Paul II, speaking of in person and act of a horizontal and vertical transcendence of the person, effectively supplies us with a vocabulary and an anthropological observation that are invaluable for the correct interpretation of Scotus's anthropological point of view. In an important passage of the Lectura, the Franciscan doctor speaks explicitly of the person as an active subject using the Latin term causa, a Latin translation of the Greek aitiam and that is very important also for Trinitarian theology. Cause can have a cause, it's efficient cause, its effect depends upon it. But uh, a personal cause, a personal agent, can also cause influence without involving any necessary dependence. The father, as it were, can, uh, uh, can, can beget the son, but that begetting does not make the son dependent on the father. That would be Arius all over, all, all over, uh, over again. Scotus's response is so important that it's worth reading in full. By so doing, we will also shed light on the modern definition of personal transcendence. In all the acts of intellectual knowledge regarding inferior and material objects, the soul is a more perfect cause than the object. The proof of this is as follows. A cause is more perfect when it is less limited in producing effects as is seen from experience. The sun, for example, whose causality is not limited by anything generable or corruptible, is more and more perfectly a cause than the other particular causes, uh, causes which uh, are, on the contrary, limited in regard to a certain effect produced and limited to a particular effect. Now, the intellectual soul, considered in its causality, is unlimited in regard to all the intelligible concepts that it can cause, whereas the object is limited to causing only those of which it is the object. The soul, therefore, is therefore more a cause in these intellections than the objects are. We can sum up all this by saying that Scotus presents an anthropological vision that hinges on the transcendence of the human person conceived in terms of an originative active power that is expressed by the idea of a subjective unlimited cause or unrestricted cause. Having a causal capacity is in fact common to many beings in nature but having an unlimited or unrestricted causal capacity also limits and implies an independence of the subject in regard to the object, and this independence translates into a freedom to put oneself in act otherwise absent. This capacity to put oneself in act indeterminately and constitutively is the transcendence proper to the human person of which modern philosophic personalism speaks. 
The active and causal transcendence of the person is also an unerring guide to the mariological conclusion of Duns Scholas at which we intend to arrive. The response to the following question will bring us to our destination. Is the causal capacity of man diminished with respect to that originally possessed by our first parents? Scotus' reply is based upon the distinction which I have analyzed elsewhere between man's natural condition and his de facto condition, that is, the one which presently characterizes him pro stato isto, that is, his de facto condition. As Dumont showed in a famous 1964 book entitled Theology as a Science and Duns Scotus' Distinction Between Intuitive and Abstractive Cognition, the ontological change does not regard the nature of man but his effective and existential condition. And this is the point that is denied by all the great Protestant reformers, especially Cal uh, Calvin. Uh, ontological weakening of man due to sin thus refers to man's being and not to his essence, that is, being in the sense of existence, in the scotistic use of the term. This means that his transcendence and his unlimited causal power are presently weakened and impoverished in their efficacy, but not suppressed. Man remains naturally inclined toward transcendence by his own causal power, even though this power is diminished in vigor. In fact, as we have seen, there is a constant relationship in man between being a cause, having a practical potential, and possessing freedom. The reduction in causal power thus implies a practical difficulty in realizing the potential naturally possessed, and by connection, a lesser freedom in achieving the objective end proper to man as man. This last consideration is the real anthropological foundation of Scotus's Mariology. Mary's originating, yes, that yes, without which there would not have been any redemption or salvation, could not have been obtained without the free consent of man. But this free consent, which certainly had to pass by way of man, could not pass by way of sin. This statement is, cru is crucial. Mary spoke on behalf of all of us, but if she were not sinless, immaculate, she would have been no longer, no more capable of that uh, act than you or me, or anyone else, uh, L, 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 else here. And that is why St. Thomas is so right. She spoke for all of us. But Scotus provides, uh, how could she do this? Because she is the Immaculate Conception. That is the ultimate answer of St. Maximilian. She is full of grace. She is pre preserved free of all taint, even the so-called debitor. Uh, uh, this last consideration, yeah. Oh, the only possibility then of a redemption that would include the free participation of man, therefore we can also therefore, consequent on our union with Mary, we can also participate freely with Christ. Salvation is not simply rammed down our throats. This is what uh, is more or less being said in the street, uh, uh, street land. The, uh, the only reason, as it were, for organizing the, uh, the order of salvation this way is precisely to provide for our personal free cooperation. But that passes through the mediation of our, uh, specifically of the fiat at the incarna uh, incarnation. Uh, then of a re uh, the only possibility then of a redemption that would include the free participation of man without the concurrence of original sin is precisely that deriving from the immaculate conception. A person, Mary, who is authentically human because she participates totally and exclusively in the human essence, but who is free from the very beginning from original sin, pro stato isto, and would respond to God with a yes in time and uh, history. We can do so after our baptism. 
And it is precisely as were the same kind of a yes, precisely because, as it were, Mary is our mother in baptism as well as the church. Mary's freedom, in fact, is uh, not such as to exclude the freedom natural to the whole species, but it is such as to render that freedom fully complete in itself and ontologically more suited to choosing the good given by God in Christ for the redemption of mankind. Benedict XVI has explained this mysterious nature of Mary's participation in the redemption with words of matchless clarity and profundity. A profession of faith in the story of God in the midst of human history does not constitute an exception to the simplicity of our profession of faith in God, but is the essential condition at its heart. And that is why the heart of all our creeds is our yes to Jesus Christ, but a yes which is rendered possible by the mediation of the Virgin Mother. Without Mary, the entire process of God stepping into history would fail of its object. The word becomes flesh, the eternal foundation of the world's significance enters into it. He does not just observe it from without, he himself becomes an active agent within it. For this to be able to happen, the virgin was needed, who made available her whole person, that is, her body, herself, that it might become the place of God's dwelling in the world. The incarnation required acceptance. And uh, Dolan's Follins, the Pope is very Scotistic in speaking in that fashion, although perhaps he would not care to have him self-described as a Scotus in theory. Scotus's anthropological reflection allows us to understand deeply the free and human character of Mary's yes, to which the Pope refers in the passage just cited. Scotus, by adopting the idea of a free and voluntary human praxis that reflects the subjective causal status of man qua man, offers a unique description of human nature, which is naturally capable of being worthy of God, but is de facto incapable of corresponding in an unlimited and adequate manner to his infinite transcendence without the help of the immaculate conception and of Mary's freedom. Divine mercy then encounters the heart of man in the open human space constituted by Mary, thus delineating an anthropology that is a mirror of God's greatness, of the power of his charity, miraculously united to the humble response of each person to salvation with Peter in Christ and through Mary. Mm -hmm.